latency in involved in in a game. And yeah. So if you do right. client server, so, that's that's going to have a lot of latency built in. Yeah, and so when you get like you know, especially in the local cluster, you you get geographically, especially, um, you know, people who are who are in gameplay being able to avoid those um, those round trips, uh, those unnecessary round trips, um, can save a lot of latency. Yeah. All right. Well, sounds like you're ready to start talking about um, question number yeah. two already. So. <laughs> Let's go back to question yeah. number one. So, uh, yeah. first, well, let, let me start off by introducing us. So, I have uh, Paolo Fragomeni. Is that right? Fra Fra sure. Yeah. So Paolo Fragomeni is with us here today on the Founders Predicament. I'm Ray Shah. Thank you for joining us, Paolo. And um, tell us, well, tell us in a minute where you are. But right now, tell me about how you got here where you know about your career where you're from and uh what you were doing sure. pre pre your startup which is socket supply yeah um okay well let's see um so when i was let's see let's go all the way back to the beginning so my some of my first work was um building modem software and uh, this goes way back. Uh, I actually operated a BBS. Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> I ran a BBS. And the sort of prior to, to web browsers, you know, BBSs were pretty interesting. Um, so I was really into modems. I thought it was really interesting. I was really into protocols. Um, and I actually, I, I, I was really early to the web because, you know, going, you know, if you're, if you're interested in BBSs, it's a very similar kind of concept, right? You have a presentation layer, you have these protocols, you have this, this, this sort of presentation and behavioral layers, and really similar to browsers in a lot of ways. In fact, I would say that uh, some of the later stage um, tools for interacting and visiting and, and browsing BBSs were very similar to web browsers. Um, and so when web browsers came along, I was really interested. So I got into JavaScript very early. Uh, it was a pretty natural transition, you know, because JavaScript is very similar to C and C++. So I felt pretty pretty much right at home with that syntax. Um, and you know, it was it was a lot more fun than doing assembler, you know, and it was it was high level and there was you know interesting stuff you could do. And very quickly, the language got to be pretty expressive. Um, you know, got closures really quickly. It got just the way that I like to think about. JavaScript, right, is is um, and it's a collection of a lot of ideas, a lot of interesting ideas. There's this um, story that uh, Brendan Eich, the creator of JavaScript, he likes to tell, which is that he created in ten days and yada yada. But really, I think you know that ten days was more than likely the output of many decades of of talking to to other programmers about ideas, and I think a lot of it had culminated at at, at one point probably before he sat down to write it, but it really got sort of finalized at that point in those 10 days. And um, there was a lot of input from, from really interesting people. Uh, I remember the folks at Borland had something to do with it. Uh, yeah, so, so, you know, JavaScript became pretty quickly a, a pretty interesting thing for me, the web in general, um, you know, and, and, uh, and so, yeah, so I, I, 
I got involved with uh, JavaScript really early, and then of course, you know, at one point Node came along, and so I was involved with that pretty early. And uh, my first startup was a uh, platform as a service for Node.js called Node.jitsu, um, and uh, and that that was fun, you know, because you know after after spending a uh, you know over a decade with with the web. Uh, you know, over well over a decade, um, you know, we were getting JavaScript on the server in a way that was really practical and people found it really pretty easy to engage with. And so, let you me know, interrupt you. What, that, did, what did Node yeah. Jitsu? What did Node Jitsu do that couldn't be done with ordinary Node? Yeah. Well, so um, you know, this is this is going back to 2010, right? So. In 2010, we didn't really have uh, we didn't have Lambdas. We didn't, you know, we had Heroku. We had Heroku, where there was this sort of exemplar, um, you know, platform as a service, right? Platform as a service. The concept is about making a platform like AWS easier to use, right? I mean, if you think about AWS in 2010, that meant you know provisioning an EC2 instance, understanding process monitoring, understanding like how to you know, all your init descripts and all, you know, basically adminning a Linux instance and running software on it, uh, and then really understanding how to, um, you know, set that up in an environment where it could scale, right? You wanted a load balancer, you wanted multiple instances, and you needed to understand shared state. You needed to do all this busy work. That It was really a lot of ceremony around um, deploying uh, software, right? And so our idea was, okay, well, like, Node is, you know, this thing that's familiar to front-end JavaScripters, like millions and millions of developers. You know, let's let's give them something that's easy to use, where they can deploy, um, you know, their their APIs that are written in JavaScript and make it, you know, just uh, really, really, really easy to do. And so, uh, you know, we had a command line tool, and it was like, okay, you write a function and you deploy your function. And really, I mean, we were we were there creating, um, you know, uh, lambdas before lambdas existed. And, uh, and and it was it was pretty early, so um, you know we, it it didn't quite that that part didn't quite work out. People didn't know what to do with that. They were like, "Well, right. how so can you were, I?" You, you were know, ahead of the mark. You were ahead of the market at that point. Yeah, we were really early to the market. Sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes it's a bad thing. Um, you know, but we learned a lot. Um, you know, working with developer tools, and really what we learned was how painful and how uh, unpredictable AWS is. And how difficult it can be to, you know, provision uh, reliably uh, resources, and you know, actually get what you think you're getting, right? And then have it uh, behave consistently. So um, a while back, uh, Brendan Gregg, uh, who's like a pretty renowned uh, performance engineer, um, written a lot of uh, stuff around Dtrace and. You know, really systems uh, programming kind of best practices for Linux. Um, you know, he, you know, had talked about how at, um, you know, Netflix, they had provisioned uh, EC2 instances and they had to run tests on them to really determine if they actually were what they had provisioned. Um, because a lot of the time there was some uh, potentially mis, um, I want to say misrepresented uh, uh, or, or, um, intentionally uh, incorrect instances, but there was definitely some 
challenges in you know ensuring that what they got really behaved like what they had expected it to behave like and um and so you know running a platform as a service we we definitely experienced a lot of uh the the sort of inconsistency that you can experience with a with a cloud uh, platform and, and so that's you know that's really the the heart of building a, a platform as a service so, so that's, that you know, goes that takes you from 2010 to to when no jitsu when did you stop it and what happened to it uh so so yeah it was acquired in uh 2000 late 2013 14 um and we uh we you know we we uh had open sourced uh, most of it and um and you know at that point like you know i really started thinking about how you know, there was a lot that we did uh, with the cloud that was really unnecessary. There was a lot of ceremony. There was a lot of work involved in um, in in doing these. You know, try to trying to consolidate everything into the cloud, right? And by this point, you know, 2015, 2017, there started to just be this massive proliferation of hardware, right? And so what we were seeing was like, okay, well, like. You know, everybody's got a uh, like a superpower computer in their in their pocket, and everybody's got this laptops everywhere. There's so just billions, there's like 15 billion mobile devices in the world. Now there's you know you know even more IoT devices, and so you know, we started thinking, well, what if we started replacing some of the cloud with uh, with with peer-to-peer -peer distributed systems? And so um, so I had spent really from you know, 2014 to 2019, um, doing a lot of like open source and researching a lot of stuff um, in in the um, in the academic space uh, with peer to peer. So I've been involved in like some open source projects that we're trying to do peer to peer, and I saw a lot of problems with them. I saw a lot of um, you know issues with with them being able to reliably replace. Um, any of the cloud infrastructure that that we you know were so kind of burnt out on and, and frustrated with, right? And so I you know I thought to myself, well, you know, um, there's definitely got to be a way. Um, and then so in 2020, right? Before you go to 2020, let me just ask you about 2013-14. You mentioned that yeah. uh, Nojitsu was open source. Now and then yeah. you also mentioned that it was acquired. Now. Was the fact that it was open sourced, did that increase the value of the acquisition or did it decrease the value of the acquisition or did it have no, no effect on the acquisition? I would say it added a lot of value. I mean, there's, a, there's really like two kinds of value, um, you know, discreetly two kinds of value um, with, with uh, deep technology companies, right? So one is um, you know, creating a piece of open source that can be, provided as you know on 100% open source and it can attract uh, developer mindshare it can attract users and companies can monetize orthogonally uh, and they can reap a lot of benefits in having developers attracted to their ecosystem right but so when, when there's a when there's a change of hands as seen with uh, mysql when when oracle bought it um, you know, mm -hmm. MarinaDB mm -hmm. just sprung up out of nowhere immediately as a 
as a, mm -hmm. as a consequence of that acquisition. How do you prevent that kind of flight? Because if you're saying the value is in the developer yeah. space, then how do you prevent how do you prevent that flight uh, to to some perceived less onerous structure, whatever it is that the open source community feels is wrong with what you've done? How do you prevent that? Mm -hmm. So yeah, so I, I think it has to do. There's there's a couple dimensions of that. One of them is certainly how stuff is licensed, right? So if all the, the development is done um, under some kind of liberal license like MIT or Apache 2, um, you know, all the work up until that point is um, you know, pretty much, uh, you, can't, you can't change that. That was all done up until that point. Um, if a company that takes over the project as a, as a corporate steward, if they decide, okay, well, you know, um, we we want to change the license and um then then that sometimes does happen and when it does happen then that's when forks happen and uh and that's the beauty of open source right so if uh people disagree with the corporate stewardship then um you know th then this is something that uh um that that a community uh gets to decide and uh and that's sort of the beauty of of open source no i i, I agree i was just curious about whether, whether you thought it, what effect it had on the value. So let's go back to 2020 and we're talking about socket supply now. So what happened in 2020? Right, yeah. Yeah, so, um, so yeah, we were just sort of thinking a lot about the cost and the complexity of the cloud and how, you know, there was just this enormous amount of, of hours spent with people in front of a screen trying to understand what's going on with this infrastructure that they put together. You know, and there's just so much time and, and, and people power that goes into trying to understand these systems. They're so brittle and they're so massive. You know, and, and the thing about cloud, you know, if you really um, kind of think about the cost function of it, it really starts to make less and less sense, right? So as your project grows, then the cost also grows uh, with 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 your project, so you know when you when you don't have any uh, customers, life is great, right? You have free tier, um, you can sort of fiddle around as much as you want. But then when you get customers, uh, you have you have um, you have margins, right? And uh, the cloud is is super expensive when you get customers. And but that's not really the problem. The problem is that um, you end up with a ton of complexity. Because cloud is really kind of, whether or not it's intentional, optimized for um, a lot of po potential, a lot of possibil possibility, right? So you can put things together any way you want. It becomes a combinatorics problem. So you, you can put together these pieces in these arbitrary ways. And what happens is it becomes brittle over as you add more complexity because all of these pieces being glued together sort of, you know, it, it eventually sort of adds up. And, um, and over time, you know, some key, key people can leave. Um, not everything gets to be, uh, you know, infrastructure as code or configuration. You end up with, uh, with these bits and pieces of, of knowledge that disappear. And, you know, eventually, yeah, systems become brittle. And so, you know, we, we thought about this a lot. We thought, okay, well, you know, yeah, what if we what if we just used the cloud less? What if we connected some some of all of this hardware that's out there in the world um, and did fewer round trips to the data center? What if we just sort of you know decided that not every request needs to go back to the data center? Um, and so 
yeah, so this is where the the peer to peer and the distributed system stuff comes into the picture. Um, you know, we did a we did a survey of the of the peer to peer space, and we looked at the protocols that existed, and you know, we looked at things like libp2p, and we thought that that was pretty interesting. But after doing some rigorous testing on it, we had realized it, that, it, that it really only worked well on servers. Well, it in fact only worked on server to server. Um, and we looked at a thing called hole punch, uh, which wasn't really able to hole punch very well. Uh, we looked at uh, we looked at a lot of dif different things, and some of them had some really obviously super smart people working on them really enthusiastic about the idea of peer-to-peer, -peer. Um, but, you know, nothing had a specification and nothing had, you know, uh, clarity to it. You know, there was either made up of code bases that scattered across GitHub and, you know, across people's personal repositories or, you know, uh, very, very hard to audit, you know, incredibly hard to audit. And with a peer-to-peer -peer system, you know, if we we're going to replace the cloud reliably, or, or parts of the cloud, we had to have something that was clearly specified uh, with a real specification, uh, um, not a hobbyist or, or enthusiast kind of kind of code, like a, a really you know something that you could really present uh, and, and be rig rigorous about uh, with a with a computer science community. Um, so, so that was really important to us, um, and so we ended up building our own peer-to-peer uh, -peer protocol that is really based on a lot of um, pretty highly peer-reviewed academic research, uh, specifically in the space of um, disruption-tolerant networks. And so the idea basically is that you can have a lot of unreliable devices out in the wild, right? And um, you can have any number of those devices unable to connect, um, you know, go on into the network, go out of the network, um, you know, really uh, be uh, connected for very short amounts of time and, um, you know, have varying degrees of battery capability or storage capability. But ultimately, at the end of the day, um, add up to a very robust network and all without needing any server um, infrastructure at all to coordinate the communication between the devices. And so you could imagine that, you know, if you're, a, for instance, like a game developer, right? Um, you know, or you want to build a, a robust gaming platform, right? Um, Stadia, for example, was a really good example of how centralization fails uh, in the context of, of really data intensive real time uh, software. Uh, you know, they tried to implement um, um, WebRTC, they tried to build, um, you know, a, a gaming platform on top of it, and uh, they tried just to pipe too much data back to the servers, back to the cloud, uh, when a lot of this could have existed really well in a peer-to-peer -peer context, right, where you're not trying to put all data through a single pipe. And so, um, you know, you, you can imagine the cost and the complexity of trying to put all of that data into a single pipe put it all back in the data center while people are trying to play a game, while every bit that's on the wire matters. So in the context of um, in the context of gaming, I think in banking as well, you have 
you have scores, right, and stuff like that. So, do you do the sort of a distributed ledger kind of thing for that for that sort of thing, or do you not get into that? Is that up to the developer who uses your product to, to build? Yeah, so there's a lot of ways to approach consistency. Um, you know, obviously for strong consistency, you know, some amount of centralization or consensus is important. And consensus can slow down, um, you know, the the uh, ability to be consistent. So generally, if you want to operate something at a very large scale, you want it to be eventually consistent. If you think about um, pretty much anything in the Amazon, like AWS cloud, um, it's almost entirely all eventually consistent. Right. So even when you're getting something with strong consistency, those are just guarantees on top of an eventually consistent system. So, you know, when people sometimes when they think about peer to peer that, oh, well, it's all eventually consistent. So it's not slow. Right. Um, so um, so it's actually it's actually um, quite fast. And the way that it stays really fast is by kind of leveraging um, a lot of um, uh, sort of prob probability uh, and and uh, and um, there's in particular a, a network effect called the Strogatz Watts um, clustering um, uh, small world network effect. Right. So this gives you really high clustering coefficients and allows peers in a sort of self-organized way to find each other and to communicate with with other peers that are relevant in a in a really in a in a really fast way where you know you really care about latency a lot but at a in a context where there could be millions and millions of peers in a network right um so you know you can implement on top of this sort of stuff things like crdts um you can implement you know things that you know there's there's hundreds of crdt libraries out there at this point what, what, sorry lots is, of really interesting what, databases what is crdp oh crdt so um so a C CRDT is basically a con it's what they call a conflict-free data type. Um, so it allows us. Uh, so for example, if you've used um, like Google Google uh, Google Docs, you know, and you've and you're, you're typing in real time, and somebody else is typing in real time, um, you know, somehow they get these data structures to be consistent with each other, right? You know where you put one letter, and I know where I put the other. And basically, um, you know, this is a this is a library. That allows you to, um, you know, have multiple users, maybe even hundreds or thousands of users, collaborating on a single, uh, single artifact, right? That may be like a, a, a document, and uh, and people can type into the document, and they're they're um, they're not going to have conflicts with that data, right? So if I write the, you know, we write, um, you know, the number is one, and I change it to two, then you the data structure that you have on your computer says too, right? So we, we get what we expect based on like sort of modern uh, distributed data structure, um, you know, uh, libraries that deal with data structures in a, uh, in a context like this. Okay, so let me ask you, on a personal level and a professional level, where will, if socket supply does everything you hope it will do, where will it be? And where would you where would that take you? Yeah, so I think that where we are headed, um, and I'm not really the only person that thinks this. Um, so there's a really great um, lecture by this gentleman named um, Peter Levine, 
and he is a principal at uh, Andreessen Horowitz. Um, and he does this talk called The End of Cloud Computing. And, um, you know, he talks about how, um, you know, we're surrounded by, um, you know, so much hardware and, and just a, a, it's just growing like, at a phenomenal rate. And all this hardware has got all these sensors in it. Right. There's all this stuff that's just producing massive amounts of data. Right. And as we produce that data, it makes less and less sense to go back to the data center to process it. Right. When it just has to go back out to the edge again to be used. Right. People want to be creating and consuming the data in roughly the same place. Right. And so what's happening just as a natural kind of effect is, is it becomes more expensive more complex to go back to the data center and it becomes easier and easier to not do it. So the natural inclination is if it saves costs, it saves money, it saves time, saves complexity, we're going to start doing everything further and further away from the data center. And so Socket, you know, our, our kind of goal is to create this, this sort of best developer uh, application, de um, you know, developer framework for applications. Um, you know, where a developer can say, okay, well, I'm going to build an app, but I got, you know, we don't necessarily need the cloud for this. So, and, and uh, yeah. And so in terms of, if this is as widely adopted as you hope, um, then will that make socket supply a household name? Um, you know, what, 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 what will it do? So, you know, how big could it get? Do you think? Well, you know, one way to look at it is market caps, right? So, um, you know, the infrastructure as a service market is a trillion dollars. And, you know, if, if we're able to, to capture a substantial amount of, of that market, you know, we're able to uh, displace AWS in a significant way, then I think that that's, uh, that's, that's pretty interesting because I think that what that does is it, is it opens up, it levels the playing field. It opens up the opportunity for businesses to recapture the margins that they've lost paying such you know heavy heavy uh heavy cloud bills right so so that's that's interesting kind of beyond socket right that that's interesting in a turn in in the kind of context of like you know what if the what if the internet uh didn't cost so much money to build on you know that that's like a, a very 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 big question uh with a, with a lot of really interesting answers and i and i think that's the only company worth creating is one where you know you can um fundamentally change the the course of of uh of, of what's valuable and, and how people um perceive you know their, their their ability to to create um you know for me personally as a founder no that's um, that's a great answer so what would you do differently if you could start socket i know you you did previously you did this uh no jitsu right and now you're doing socket supply what lessons have you learned this time around? I mean, I'm sure you learned a lot from last time, but what lessons have you learned this time around where if you could dial back three years, go back to 2020, start again, you'd, you'd just be a little further along than you are now. What would you do? What would you change? So I think that what I, yeah, that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, there's lots of little things, um, but I think, you know, the, the one core, imp super important thing 
is, um, <clears throat> you know, to remember what it's, how important MVPs are, right? And how important validation is um, by, by people <clears throat> in, who, who are your audience, right? Um, it's very easy in a space that doesn't have a very good reference point. You know, there, there are no peer-to-peer -peer companies, right? There are no, there are no peer-to-peer libraries that work very well, right? That are, you know, specifically for web developers, right? This, this is just a, a problem that hasn't been solved before. And so, um, you know, there wasn't, there aren't reference points. So you tend to end up reading a lot of computer science papers. You end up going down these rabbit holes, you know, with, with like, you know, correctness and ensuring that, you know, at one point, you know, we decided, you know, <clears throat> we're building a distributed system. We absolutely need to have a formal proof of its, uh, you know, correctness. And so you know, one of the things that we did was we spent a lot of time with TLA plus, which is Leslie Lamport's um, uh, language for uh, formally specifying a protocol. And this was amazingly valuable, like really, really cool. Um, and we spent a bunch of time with it. And I think, you know, we realized like, okay, well, you know, we have this, you know, amazing capability to verify all this stuff, but, you know, we got some of these other things wrong and now we need to go back to that. And, you know, we went in circles quite a bit, you know? And so what I would say is like, you know, especially if you're developing a protocol, develop the protocol. And then what you really think you absolutely have it nailed down, that's when it's time to start involving something like a formal proof. So you invoke the formal proof too early? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. I think we, we started, you know, getting excited. We were like, this is the way to really be adults and really prove that, you know, that, that, the, uh, that, that the protocol is sound and, and you know, has, has rigor, you know. Um, and we just started really playing with that at a, at a much earlier stage than we should have, I think. Um, you know, fortunately, maybe it's survivor bias. Uh, here we are. And you know things are things are fine. We're doing well, um, you know. But but I think that uh, yeah, MVP focus on on MVP. I think would be would be the thing I would say over and over as a mantra. Okay, that's that's some great advice. Um, did you did you get investors? Is this a bootstrapped uh, enterprise, or did you get investors? And then and then if you did, what criteria did you use to sort out investors you wanted to deal with and investors you didn't? And what, what, I guess what criteria did they use to see value in you? Yeah, um, yeah. So, so we're a venture-backed company, and um, we raised uh, three point five million um, a little about a little less than two years ago. Um, and uh, you know that was shortly after we had started the company. But what we did was, um, you know, we we went to. Uh, we went to investors and we told them like we've we've identified a pretty you know significant gap in the market and uh, you know we we think we have the technical capabilities to solve that and uh, you know we 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 kind of demonstrated that with some some sort of kind of rough proof of concepts and you know got got past the technical diligence uh, part of it um, you know formulated a plan around you know how it was a business and. You know how how we um, you know can can capture this market. Um, I feel like there's a lot of you know speculation. You know when you go out to raise, it's like you know it's all ideas. You know no nobody goes out with the perfect plan uh, and and says you know 
this is what we're going to do. We're we're here to dominate it. We're going to do it. You know, we're going to become the the new you know cat- dominant uh, company in this category, a category that doesn't even exist. I mean, it's just like you know, it's a lot of speculation. So you know, it's really about building awesome relationships. You know, and the investors we have are like super cool people, and they're really big risk takers, and uh, but really kind of grounded and sober um, in a lot of ways it, at a at a time in in a in a space where you know it's 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 very difficult to be um, to be an expert on kind of everything. So you know, you you kind of build these relationships with people who. Are, are smart and and kind of have enough context about a certain certain thing and kind of all comes together with with uh, you know in in the end when when you get the right people together. Cool. Okay. Um, and do you plan on selling Socket Supply at some stage in the future? Are you planning on exiting it? Would you like to be acquired by a larger entity? What would be the, uh, a successful outcome for you? Yeah, we'll, we'll see. You know, at this point, it's really about uh, building an, 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 a technology that, that matters, um, that's transformative. Um, you know, and it certainly could uh, be that we knock over enough Apple carts and we piss enough people off that, you know, somebody decides that either this is the technology that they need to, um, you know, that they need to be the, the, the steward of or that our products uh, need to go into their portfolio or that, they need to shut us down and, and shut it up or, you know, who knows? I mean, it's very difficult to tell where any of this stuff can go. Um, you know, we've, we've, uh, we've certainly had some, some interest already um, in terms of, of uh, uh, you know, collaboration from, from people who uh, we matter a lot to us um, in, in advancing the space, you know, um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just a fact that you know the cloud really got dominated by uh, some pretty big players, and there's a lot of really powerful and pretty interesting companies out there who are saying, "Well, you know, what's after cloud? You know, w- w- maybe what we do is we take a different approach, and we're able to, uh, you know, uh, not just um, you know try to enter the market, but change the market." and um, and so, yeah. So we've got uh, we've got some really strong relationships going with some people that are kind of in that camp. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we really hope to to work with them to you know, stir things up and, like I said, knock over some big apple carts. <laughs> well, well, let's hope that it is stirring things up and not getting acquired so it can be shut down because that that would be for me. I mean, <laughs> hearing what you've got cooking, that would be a disaster. From, yeah, you know. Well, that brings us back to our to our open source conversation, right? You yes. know, and and you know we're open sourcing this one hundred percent, and that's a big part of what makes this work, right? Is is having open source that that can't be taken down, it can't be you know it can't be um, you know disabled, it can't be uh, you know lowered in terms of its effectiveness or something. You know, we're not going to create an enterprise version of this. We're not going to have a a slightly less effective version of it, like. It's going to be out there, and it's going to be available to anybody indefinitely. And you know, um, w- one of the reasons why that's so important is is not just that you know if we if if the if the uh, copyright changes ownership, but really the the most important thing is that there is the ability for people to escape this 
um, this sort of tyranny of, 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 uh, of what the cloud uh, kind of has going for it, right? This, this landlord-tenant relationship that everyone who's a builder, everyone sort of suffers from these low margins and this tax that, um, you know, it's really holding back the ad advance of, of really interesting products that could exist. I mean, I have know? to say, in, I mean, the clouds, many... in the cloud's defense, right, I used to run, I used to rent space in a, in a data center, and I had, you know, 10 machines there. And I'd get pinged on my phone when one of them went down and I'd have to cycle over in the middle of the night, um, use my, hope my finger, my, my handprint still worked, go inside, open it up. And it was just like, oh my God, this is such a nightmare. So when cloud came along for me, I know you're saying tyranny of cloud. I'm just saying like from the, you know, 20, 2010, 2012 point of view, it was like, ah, oh, I could just, Throw oh, totally. And somebody Absolutely. else worries about it. So for me, it yeah. was at that time, it was like not tyranny, it was liberty. It was fantastic. Absolutely. I get what you're saying, Absolutely. I get what you're saying but I'm just yeah. saying, you know, there and, is and I think. Yeah, no, no, I, I think that's absolutely the right perspective. Like, you know, I mean, it is, it does sound a little bit crazy. It's like, why do we want to get away from the cloud or why is it bad? Like, you know, it's just starting to, you know, get adoption in a lot of places. And the thing is, is that, you know, anything that is sufficiently interesting in tech is replaced by something else. True. And what happens is, um, you know, it always gets replaced sooner and more surprisingly than we ever thought it would be, right? And this is just how this game works. It's very weird, right? You start getting used to something and you're like, well, this is cool. This is how we do things, right? And then the next day you find out, oh, this, there's a far more efficient way to do this. And people are starting to look at this, you know? And so it's really interesting. Like, you know, the cloud made it possible for a lot of different kinds of companies to exist. The cloud made it possible to do a lot of different kinds of things. And that's why it was so successful. That's why Jeff is one of the richest guys in the world. If not, I think maybe he, I don't know. can't remember, but you know, I don't keep track of stuff like that. But, you know, um, the cloud was incredibly useful. And uh, we owe a ton of progress to it. But at the same time, um, you know, the landscape has changed so much in terms of hardware that exists in the world and how we can leverage it. And so, you know, in the same way that it was like amazing that you went to the data center and you're like, oh, like, you know, th you know, th this can, you know, just I can do this remotely. I don't have to, you know, ride my bike over and go to the hardware and do this thing. Like I, I have this ability just to, you know, flip a switch and, or, you know, SSH in and there it is. Right. And so just imagine, you know, that you're on this exponential curve and you're able to reduce the complexity even more and have it be even more convenient. Right. So just imagine that, you know, that, that, that convenience that you felt, it could be multiplied again by not needing any of that. No, that's, that's a very attractive it's, proposition. Yeah, it's a very attractive proposition. And um, I'm sure that we will, we will uh, once you get back to New York, I take it you're in Germany, judging by the sign behind you. Uh, once you're back in New York, hopefully we'll grab a coffee together and we can discuss the future of technology a little bit more. Absolutely. I would love so, to. Yeah, definitely. So thank you, Paolo. Uh, so Paolo Fragomeni, is that right? Fragomeni. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. That's correct. Yeah. Paolo Fragomeni, thank you so much for taking part in the 
founder's predicament. I'm Ray Shah, signing off. Thank you so much. All right, cheers. Thanks.